Hi everyone, you're listening to Bush Tech, an ag tech podcast that gets to the so what of ag tech. We'll bring you interesting things from interesting people, and I'm one of your co-hosts, Simon Matthewson. And I'm your other co-host, Sarah Nolet. On this podcast, we will bring in leading speakers in technology, entrepreneurship, investment, agriculture, science, and anything else you can think of and we can find in the world of ag tech. We'll look to demystify it so that we're getting to the so what. What does it really mean for farmers and for the broader agricultural industry? I'm farming and I grow it. I'm farming and I grow it. So, Allison, uh, welcome to the Bush Tech Podcast. So great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd love to start with the kind of origin story of AgriList. Um, like, how did you end up in this space uh, and and doing what you're what you're doing now? Yeah, um, it's a little bit. I guess of a roundabout way to to ag. I studied physics in college and. Um, was really interested in the solar industry. I was working for a number of companies that were really innovative on the solar equipment side, so manufacturing different types of solar panels for residential and commercial applications, um, which I loved. The thing that really got me excited about that was inefficiencies in systems. So finding a place in a system where it's a little bit inefficient and the efficiency is actually killing me as a user. Um, and, And ag to me was actually incredibly similar. It was a system as a whole that's incredibly intriguing because there are so many areas of opportunity for um, for disruption or for evolution or um, to change to meet the needs of our population changes. So whether it's from distribution or consumption or growing, there are just these areas that to me seemed incredibly inefficient. And, um, and so I started working for a greenhouse company back in 2011 that was trying to do solve a lot of those challenges in terms of the actual production side um, by building greenhouses closer to the point of consumption and growing more sustainably for the local population. Uh, and I just fell in love. I fell in love with the ag industry. I fell in love with growers. I just, the idea of growing food to me was incredibly beautiful. Um, it's something that, you know, we all eat, but we don't all actually get to touch the system at play. And just getting really close to it was, um, was something I just fell in love with. And so, uh, I knew that this was a place for me, but I think the whole problem that I'm trying to solve at AgriList is um, it all originated there. It all originated when you're when you're doing the farming, the, duty, the duties of farming every day, right? So you're um, you're trying to make ends meet. You have low margins. You're trying to understand where you're selling, who you're selling to, and that to me is a data problem, um, which is the problem we're trying to solve at AgriList, which is you build software that can make all of those data problems not problems, but instead benefits to the grower. So how can you increase the margin by looking at all the information at, hand, at your hand and trying to use that to complete the picture and, and really um, focus on that margin side? Um, so a little bit roundabout, but, um, but it, you know, logical also, I guess, the theme that drives it all together is inefficiencies in its systems. I love that story coming in from non-ag. That's been my journey as well, sort of coming more from the tech engineering side. Um, how, how has that been working in the ag industry without a kind of ag background? Have you gotten any pushback on that? Or because you're in a slightly different space in terms of indoor farming, is it kind of more accepted that you might not have you know, grown up on a farm or, or come from this industry? Yeah, you know, the funniest thing about that is 
this. Um, so whenever you talk to somebody who's in the ag industry but is in uh, conventional ag, right, so any of the conventional agricultural fields, uh, they'll tell me that I don't have a background in ag. And anybody in our space, in the space specifically, uh, I've got one of the longest backgrounds in ag, <laughs> um, which is this very interesting nuanced problem that exists in, in the industries. Um, so I've worked in, you know, on the operations side of controlled environment ag for the better part of a decade now. And, uh, and probably one, you know, there's only about three or four companies that have been around in the, uh, the fast growth venture backed, uh, controlled environment space in, in that period. So there aren't that many of us in this group that have done that. Uh, and there's not that many of us that have a tech background as well, where we can combine those two pieces, um, of information to actually create this interesting solution for the space. Um, and so, no, I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't. You know, I, I, you know, my parents weren't farmers, but, um, but I actually have been one of the few people to have worked in the industry as long as I have, at least in this specific industry, right? Um, now that's not to say that it's the entire industry as a whole. One of the challenges that you do face, or at least I face, um, is I know how most of these, uh, uh facilities operate, but the greenhouse industry as a whole has been around for decades and decades and decades, and it is more conventional. And so that's a space that I do, you know, there is this sort of outsider feel. Um, but I think that there's a big trust element. I, I, I think ag in general is based off of an element of trust. I, a lot of sales happen via, I trust that this person can solve this problem for me and I trust the product or, or service that they provide. Um, and, you know, when I go in the facility and I can speak to speak because I actually understand it and there's a curiosity there, then the growers end up tending to, to build that trust innately. Um, that's a roundabout answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but a good one. And um, I, I, that's been my experience too. That despite sometimes being an outsider coming in with curiosity and willingness to learn, then people you know want to teach you and want to show you what they're passionate about and what they've been doing. Uh, yeah. You mentioned that green is are different, or that that's one kind of flavor of of indoor ag, and there are different ones. I would love to get the kind of indoor farming 101 from you for for those who aren't uh, as familiar with the different types of systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the way that we think about the industry, at least, and I know that this isn't necessarily standardized yet for the way that most people think about the space, um, is that there is really two different types of systems at play here. There is a fully enclosed indoor system where you're not relying on sunlight at all. And then a hybrid system where you do have sunlight, but you might also have supplemental light, um, and, and you're building in a greenhouse where there's access to uh, natural light. Um, now, there's a whole different spectrum of types of growing systems that can fit within those two pictures. You can have hydroponics where you're um, submerging the roots of a plant into water. You can have aquaculture or aquaponics where there's fish involved in the process as well, and you're using the fish um, you know, the fish process to actually fertilize the plants and there's a whole filtration system there at play. You can have aeroponics where you're misting the roots of the, of the crops with a nutrient solution. So, and you can have soil, right? You can have conventional soil as well. So there's this sort of full spectrum of different types of growing systems. Um, but the way that we think about it typically is that there's either, you know, no sunlight or sunlight, uh, involved in the picture. Um, and one of the interesting things as a market is that they're pretty segmented as well. Uh, the vertical farming or fully enclosed farming space has only really been around for the last few years in its, and it's really in its infancy. Uh, there's been people who have tried it, um, for a long time, but in the last few years, it started to gain a lot of momentum 
because people are starting to figure out the unit economics, the cost of LEDs is going down, and you happen to have a lot of things in your favor um, related to the macro challenges of efficiencies, but also food safety and um, challenges around pathogens in uh, our in our crops specifically, so things like leafy greens and herbs. Um, and so that space is starting to take off. And then you've got the greenhouse industry, which I would also categorize into different spaces, which is you've got the greenhouse industry of old. So you've got your Almeria, Spain, you've got um, most of rural China, um, it, you know, that where greenhouses are present. You've got sort of low-tech plastic um, facilities that serve for low, you know, low-margin, high-efficiency, fast distribution uh, and broad distribution crops. And then you've got this high-tech, uh, maybe more automated, intelligent-driven glass greenhouses, uh, the facilities of the Netherlands and now the U.S. and Canada uh, that are really quickly taking off because, again, of those challenges in the system of efficiencies and supply and food safety um, and just the ability to get a higher margin than in conventional applications for certain crops. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the certain crop distinction because um, there's a obviously a conversation around the world about feeding the growing population and, and healthier food and, and the kind of macro trends, some of which you mentioned. What's your view on indoor agriculture's ability to feed that growing population and what role do you see it playing? Like, are we sort of going to move to a, a much more fully indoor system and can you grow everything indoors or where, where are the lines and, and maybe barriers? Uh, in that sense, yeah, indoor indoor ag is a tool in in the agricultural to, toolkit is how I would phrase it. It's uh, you can only grow certain crops indoors, uh, and I would say ever actually. I wouldn't even say that that's a now thing. I would say now we've got a small group of things you can grow indoors, and I'd say in the future, you know, ten years out, twenty years out, you can probably increase that spectrum, but you're never gonna do. You're never going to do certain crops indoors because it doesn't make sense economically. And at the end of the day, ag is about economics more than almost anything. Uh, and so if you think about things that you can grow really well indoors, uh, take a vertical farm as an example. So you've got a fully enclosed warehouse and you're trying to grow things in racks. Um, and the reason for that is you're trying to optimize your square footage, your growable area, right? Your square footage of growable area. So if I'm going to stack things, well, the things that I can grow there by nature, have to be physically short. You can't grow vine crops there because you're trying to stack. Um, so the more stacking ability you have, the better off you're going to be. So that's limiting you off the bat to certain crops that are sh physically short crops. You need shorter growth cycle crops because the more turns you can have, the more you can generate from an economic perspective. So um, now you're looking at a bucket of things like leafy greens and lettuces. You're looking at herbs. You're looking at um, strawberries and certain berries. So you're limited to this sort of pool of crops that you can grow, um, and then you and then you need to look at the unit economics. So it's expensive to operate an indoor facility because you're running things like lighting uh, almost 24/7, right? Uh, and so if you take a picture of economics, now you're looking at high margin items. So now you're still stuck in this bucket of herbs, lettuces, and and, and potentially berries and strawberries, you know, specifically strawberries. Um, so that, that's a small pool. If you look at things like corn, wheat, soy. You know, those are commodity crops. They're really cheap to produce. You can do it in mass and you can do it and you can do it pretty well outdoors. So there's no real reason to bring that production indoors. And at the same time, I'd say there's no real reason to look at lettuce production in Salinas and say that that's the correct way to do it. Um, so I, I think what you'll see is you'll start to see crops that 
can be grown to the quality and cost of conventional or better, start to move indoors if it makes sense to do that. Um, and then, uh, and then greenhouses can grow pretty much anything. It's just about economics at this point because uh, you can have a soil, you can have soil production and grow corn in a greenhouse. It doesn't make economic sense to do that, so you probably wouldn't do that. But um, if you can find a crop that works economically within these facilities, and you can do that sustainably, economically, and uh, and and meet the quality. I think, and safely, actually, and if you can meet the food safety demands, I'd say there's probably no reason to grow that anywhere but indoors. So I think it'll be a, a piece of the puzzle. I don't, it, you know, I'm not a believer that it's the end all be all. I don't know that there is one in our agricultural system. Um, so, yeah. I'm curious, too, about the kind of types of farmers, um, because one of the arguments mm. that I've heard made for the growth of indoor farming is sort of anyone can be a farmer and you can farm in a city or you can supplement uh, more conventional farming with an indoor system. And so it broadens not only the type of crops and the um, margin and economics that you can get, but also who who is a farmer and who will be a farmer in the future. What's your view or like what what evidence do you have so far of, sort of who are the, the farmers of the future, especially in the indoor space? That's a great question. It, I think I think a few things about this actually. I think that's true to some degree, but I'll also argue against it. Um, the one of the beautiful things about indoor ag is that it's a contained picture. So you're limiting your risk to some degree on so many things. You're limiting the risk on weather. You're limiting the risk on a lot of financial. Uh, in some regards, a lot of the financial risk. You're you're taking some of the risk of conventional ag down, primarily weather and stability of, of forecast. Um, and, and year-round production, right? So you can produce year-round without the, the weather implications. So that inherently makes it attractive. Um, and then when you start to think about the unit economics, if you can see uh, 30, 40, 50% margins as opposed to 4 or 5% margins, then that becomes an economically attractive picture. Um, and so you are seeing a lot of people with non-conventional farming backgrounds getting into the indoor farming space. You're seeing, um, we were just talking about this actually earlier with a group, um, because two of their farms are run by uh, former Wall Street uh, folks who wanted to have a career transition. Their parents were in farming. They were actually, in, uh, one was in farming, one was in ranching. And they wanted to get back into the ag space, but they didn't want to do it in the way their parents did it. And so Indoor Ag made it a really attractive opportunity for them because they understood what they were doing. They knew how to run a business. They understood the economics and they um, and they had this ag background where they could actually get in and operate successfully. Um, so we do see that a lot. We see a lot of career transitions from, you know, one space to another. We see a lot of people in the manufacturing or distribution spaces who come into space, um, which tends to make a little bit of sense. Where I'd almost say the flip side of this is, I think... There's a de-emphasis on how difficult it really is to operate a farm, and uh, and that you're still dealing with all of the biological systems coupled with manufacturing and distribution practices and the pricing volatility of different markets. To to you know that this de-emphasis is, is problematic because you're having people who risk it all by getting into an incredibly capital-intensive industry without necessarily a market plan or without the understanding of the biological components. Um, and that, to me, is really scary, actually, to look at the picture uh, as a whole if you back up and you try and understand who's getting into the space and how it can grow. So, you know, I think there's 
there's an interesting thing here because you can have people getting into this space that aren't necessarily coming from conventional backgrounds, but I'd be wary of doing it if you don't have an understanding of how difficult it is to farm and really focus on how to take some of those growing risks away. I think that is so, um, like such an important subtlety. And it's one of the things that's interested me most about this space. The, the lens through which I've seen it is the different business models of the indoor farms, especially in the tech space. Uh, some of them are like the farms and selling a, a branded product on a much shorter supply chain, like a, a lettuce or a, you know, a micro herb. And then some of them are selling the actual farms. And then of course, all the, on the, all the way on the other side, a model like yours where you're sort of the, the picks and shovels and enabling these systems to exist. And it seems to me that if you're trying to not only grow and, and be a farmer, but then also like sell a farming system and then also have manufacturing and a distribution chain and a brand, that that is so much more complexity in any of the other businesses that only take on one piece of that. So I think the business model of these uh, companies, especially the ones that are, are raising capital, is, is fascinating and highlights all the different pieces of food supply chains and how kind of indoor farming can, in some cases, bring all of that together, but that that is, is in some ways mm-hmm. risky and it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the conventional space, you know, go to go to a conference, go to an ad conference, right? And the first thing that you're going to see is you're going to see a breakdown of grower versus grower shipper versus packer versus, you know, there's different and and every indoor facility is almost trying to do all of those things at once. You're trying to grow, package, merchandise, sell, and and it's really really hard, and it's a perishable crop, so you can't get it wrong, uh, which is challenging. You know, you can't hold on to the crop like a commodity and wait for the best pricing. You're selling when you have it or it's gone, uh, which is really interesting. And I think one of the nice, you know, there's a good and bad side to this, but these are much smaller facilities. You know, you're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of acres. You're talking about, uh, you know, a lot of times you're talking about under an acre, uh, and then you know there are hundred acre farms, but these aren't these aren't the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres of farms that we see in the Midwest uh, in the U.S. Uh, and so that enables them to do some of those things. But one of the interesting things I've seen is that as you get smaller on the scale you're doing more things, which is almost the opposite of what anybody who runs the business would want to do. You have, you know, a, a, a 10,000 square foot facility who's doing um, growing, packing, shipping, merchandising, branding, and selling. And then you have 100-acre facilities that are just selling tomato transplants to other growers who finish off and do the rest of the product packaging and whatnot. So I think it's really interesting if you look at the scale of size as well, because it seems to me you know, qualitatively that the small farms are actually taking a lot of the responsibility of doing a full, you know, the full sort of, of uh, seed through, through consumption, uh, which is, which is just interesting as a, as a business owner. Yes, exactly. And uh, I wonder about the investor side as well. You guys do an awesome state of indoor ag, uh, report and do you guys do that every year? I know I saw this year, but is that something you've done every year? We've done it for the last two years. So every year for the last two years, uh, we are planning on doing it every year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and one of the kind of findings was that access to capital is, is a big challenge yeah. for these farmers. And I wonder, is that because of the, like either A, complexity that these farms are taking on and all those different pieces you just mentioned and or B, investors inability or challenges in understanding um, th- those models and, and that complexity, or I guess, see just a, a lack of a 
uh, fit for kind of venture capital, other types of capital in in this space? Like, what's the, yeah. what's the challenge? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a few things here too. Um, so one, I feel like a lot of farms are going after the wrong types of capital. So um, I am not a believer that farms that operate and sell produce and business model should be seeking venture capital. And uh, I just think it's the wrong type of capital for these operations. These are long payback, you know, long ROI cycle projects that are much like the solar industry, much like infrastructure projects where a debt capital or a project financing model works much better. Um, so I think that a lot of growers, what we see is these small, you know, one-off, one-farm, 10,000-square-foot facilities that are trying to raise venture capital because it's an expensive endeavor. And I think that that's problematic. And I think having a lot of press around you know, farms getting access to this capital is also problematic because everyone thinks that they should do that. Um, the second thing is that if you then go to the debt side and you say, okay, well, these farms should be seeking debt capital, uh, then you have to look at what types of rates and accessibility that the that there is on, on the debt side. And for most banks, you need to have operated for three years to in order to, to get access to loans, or you need to have some type of operating history. Well, the problem with indoor ag is actually the capital intensive nature of the initial build out. So now you're saying to a farmer that they have to they have to come in with a million dollars, two million dollars to build a facility, and they have to front the working capital, and then by the year two or three, maybe they can start refinancing and paying back on uh, on old loans, and that is a pretty big sell for most people. Um, and so, you know, there's, I think that one of the interesting things in this industry is going to be the evolution of how capital sees the, um, sees these assets. And I would, you know, I would throw money at the idea that there's going to be innovation in financing models that are focused in on capital intensive upfront uh, and higher working capital projects that have a long ROI, but are still profitable and are going to have a good return. It's just a longer-term horizon, and you're going to see some of the folks that are used to investing in infrastructure projects to actually start coming into this space over the next few years. That is fascinating, and I'm so excited to hopefully see that as well. Um, I think it's a challenge for ag tech um, in general, but especially these systems that are touching technology and farming and have this capital intensity. I think like insect farming is is another example of, of a lot of the same challenges. Um, and probably there are other examples as well. So that's really interesting. Um, I just wanted to see if there's anything else from the kind of state of indoor report that you guys did that you think is maybe interesting to touch on, like sort of what was most surprising to you um, in, in doing that report and getting mm -hmm. that data? Did you find what you expected or were there any um, big, big surprises? Uh, let me see this year. Um, so some of the surprising things, or or maybe there were some things that felt surprising, but then when you step back, you're like, oh, that actually isn't that surprising. Um, so one of the things that we asked was we asked uh, we asked growers to quantify what they thought was the most underhyped and overhyped technologies being talked about in the space right now, and uh, the most underhyped was AI, or the thing that they were most excited about was AI and automation. Um, or specifically in the automation side, not necessarily in the AI side. And then the thing that they thought was most overhyped was container farming uh, and the container farming technologies. And, and I, you know, immediately when we were doing the analysis on the, the – and we didn't provide, by the way, we didn't provide any examples of things they could put in there. They answered that as a blank, blank slate, and something like 80% of people answered container farming for overhyped. Um, and so one of the things that was really interesting was, one, how many people felt – 
aligned on that. I think when you ask open-ended questions, <laughs> oftentimes you just get a full spectrum of random answers. Um, so everyone seems to be pretty aligned on those two things. Um, but two, you know, it, it sort of isn't aligned necessarily with the way that the media or, um, or investors are thinking about the space. Um, and so you think, you know, you step back and say, hey, why is this, why is this and why is it surprising to me? And then when you realize, when, you know, when you think about it and you realize, oh, well, the people who are answering the survey are commercial farmers, um, you know, are commercial indoor operators. And so, uh, yeah, it would make sense to me that this would be something that they would maybe feel would be overhyped because it hasn't been proven out yet. And it's not something that they would be implementing in the farm. And it's not something that they necessarily see valuable. And so, you know, maybe the broader ecosystem loves this idea. But to the farmers answering the survey, it felt out of place. And similar, you know, similar from automation perspective, you know, you can we can talk about how much it's overhyped in the industry a lot right now. But to farmers, automation could be the difference between spending millions of dollars every year in labor and spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in labor, which could mean the difference between uh, a 40 percent margin and a 20 percent margin. So uh, so that could be a really huge deal. And a lot of that around data is always, you know, take a step back and remember who you're surveying and who you're talking to and what they're thinking around these types of things is, um, because it usually makes it less surprising. I think that's so true. And there's examples of that across um, different, you know, aspects of agriculture in terms of the sort of consumer or ecosystem perspective and like what they think is exciting and like what the farmers are seeing as exciting. Um, You know, whether you talk about different kinds of, of sensors, you know, probably consumers aren't all that excited about software that helps with, you know, compliance or record keeping or just data management, but that's really valuable to farmers in in helping them save time and and sort of be more efficient. Automation across all different kinds of ag is another example. And then when you talk to consumers, there's concerns about, you know, losing jobs or um, is it safe or, you know, all these different perceptions. So I think that's um, really interesting. And then adding in the investor perspective of like how do investors see this space and what makes an attractive for them is like a whole nother lens on on all of this. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things too, again, on the scale of size issue, if you talk to a commercial operator with 100 acres of greenhouse coverage and a vertical farmer who's operating in 10,000 square feet, you're going to get totally different answers to those things as well because they have different types of labor needs. They have different types of sales and marketing needs. They have just different types of needs. Um, so I think that's one of the things that we try and improve every year actually when we do the survey is making sure that we can break out the size and type of facility and how they're answering those questions so that you don't just try and lump everything into one because it's, it's pretty dangerous, I think, too, to look at things as a blanket, a blanket understanding uh, when, it, when it may not be at all. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was one of the more um, helpful insights that I found from the survey, which is the difference in farm size. It makes a ton of sense, but um, naively not having paid a ton of attention to this space the just vast differences depending on that, the, the scale of the operation just changes economics, changes what's useful in terms of technology, you know, how many people you have, what your challenges are. That's obviously true. Um, but when the hype is around sort of these micro herb indoor production systems sitting in a restaurant, you're not thinking about it at, at the same scale. Totally. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of change directions, Allison, and ask you um, recently, you actually kind of how we connected, although I knew who you were and had been hoping to chat with you for a while, um, was on Twitter, you posted <laughs> um, a, 
um, love, love meeting new people on Twitter. Um, on Twitter, you posted a list of um, women in ag tech that you wanted to hear speaking at conferences, and that turned into a bit of a, I guess, a viral uh, movement where you ended up making a big Google Doc of women uh, in ag tech and sort of calling out the fact that there are women innovating in this space and that they should be more well represented, especially at conferences. I just wanted to ask you what made you kind of start doing that and then what's been your like reaction or, or opinion on like how this has kind of blown up? Did you expect that to happen and, and what's kind of come of it from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I only did this really to go viral. I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's actually the opposite. I've always <laughs> been pretty quiet about these types of things. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I've, I was raised in a way that was, you know, you're, you're not a step back, but you're always going to fight challenges. And so just, you know, fight to win essentially. And, and just, uh, and that's how I drive a lot of my mentality around these types of things was uh, when we raised our first round of financing, I, I always give this example, uh, back when we were raising that round, I, I think the average number of partner meetings that a man had to pitch in order to get a seed round of the size that we had was something around like 20, 25 people. Um, we pitched over 80, uh, or I pitched over 80 in order to get the same sort of size round. And, and that's something that, again, I don't, I didn't look at that as a disadvantage necessarily. Instead, I just, I understood the challenge and I went into it saying, okay, I know that I'm going to have to pitch, you know, 4X the amount of people, but I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it because it's, you know, I'm going to win and I'm going to get the financing I need to carry this business through. Um, and so that's always been the sort of attitude I've taken. And I, I used to avoid a lot of panels where I was asked to speak about, you know, being a woman in the tech industry or being a woman in ag. Um, and it was funny because it all sort of culminated at, at this point where um, I, I speak at a lot of conferences and I'm asked to, to participate at a lot of events. And one of the interesting things is if you look around the room, you'd think that there were no women in ag or ag tech. Um, and that's just not the case. I, you know, I, ha- I get the pleasure of working with so many women, uh, especially on the ag research side and the big ag side, who are senior leaders of these organizations that are doing real meaningful work, um, and on the ag tech side, who are founding companies that are doing really interesting and meaningful um, things. And so I kept saying, well, why is this happening? Why, why are women being asked to speak? And it's either, you know, you can look at it as a pipeline problem, or you can look at it as a networking problem, or you can look at it as a combination. But something was happening that was breaking the system for, for me. And, and frankly, I don't want to be involved in things that just don't have other people that I want to learn from. Uh, I don't want to go into a room and have the same people at the same events talking about the same things from the same perspective, because it's not worth my time or, or energy to do that. And so, um, and same goes for me too. If I'm asked to speak at every single event, uh, that's, that's the same thing. It's just that it, I'm not the audience member in that case. And somebody else is getting that same experience. Uh, and it's really, really invaluable. It, it's not valuable at all. Uh, and so I was sitting back and I had this, uh, this event organized that was organized in uh, what's coming up. Uh, they sent me an invite to sponsor the event, not speak at the event, sponsor the event. And I looked at the list and it was uh, about 90%. The speaker list was about 90% white male. And the rest of it was uh, was either people of color, uh, it was it was men, people of color, and so it was all men, a hundred percent, not not one woman on this list. And it was thirty or forty speakers, uh, and uh, and a very 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 limited minority of people of color. 
And so I just got pretty frustrated. I was sitting there in the afternoon. And I was like, this is really annoying to me. I want to see more women. I want to go to an event with people that, are, that look different uh, and have different experiences and understand different things. Uh, and diversity is important. It's not just a buzzword. And this is annoying to me. And so I just tweeted a list of, of women that I, I know personally that I wanted, you know, that I'd love to have uh, the opportunity to go speak, you know, listen to. Uh, and it did blow up a little bit. It was very interesting. <laughs> I wasn't really expecting it, albeit uh, I guess it is a good time to be a woman and talking about being a woman right now. So I think we have, you know, there's that going for us right now. Um, but I think one of the interesting reactions was immediately after posting it, and we shared, so I shared 75 women, I think, and uh, and then shared a Google spreadsheet. And now it's almost 400 women um, because people have just been continuously adding to it, which I think is, is beautiful and, and wonderful and uh, is exactly what should happen. And I had, uh, and so the interesting thing to me was I had a few of us that wrote into me probably within 48 hours who said, you know, I'm organizing this event. It's typically been 80% men and we want to change that and we need help. Or it's been 90% men and we need help changing that. Um, thank you for posting this. I'm going through it now. Would you make interest to X, Y, and Z people? And that to me is like the dream because it's really easy for somebody to put a list together, in my opinion. But the, you know, it starts to show that there's this network problem. There's a problem that event organizers may not know about women being out there or these women specifically or, uh, or, or any women and, and maybe just don't care. And so they don't pay attention to it until somebody calls them out. And I think that's what happened. And so I think the event organizers thing has been interesting. Um, we, uh, one of the other things that's been really interesting is we've had two of our investors who are like, we need to do better at this and help, we need your help doing it. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to put the burden on, on me or any of the, like any individual in general, but, um, but it is interesting to see that they want to do something about it and they're actively taking steps to do something about it. Um, you know, one is going to commission a research report on challenges that women might face in raising capital in the ag space. Um, one is starting to, is organizing a conference, actually Davos on the Delta in May, that's like two weeks or so, um, or next week. And, uh, and they're trying to have, uh, either gender parity or close to it, um, which I think is incredibly ambitious and aggressive and wonderful and great. Um, so I think there's things that are starting to happen, which feels good. I don't think events are the only challenge. I think, uh, especially on the tech side, you know, access to capital and, and those other challenges need to be addressed as well. But events felt like something I was doing every day. And that's why, that's why it frustrated me. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And did you, um, that's so cool to hear some of this changing. I, um, like I wondered where it all would go because I, I think I caught it, like I happened to see it on Twitter quite early and was like, oh, this is either going to be like a nothing thing because people aren't ready for it or it's so topical right now that it will kind of take off. And it seems like it, it really took off um, and great to hear the positive. And we'll see, right? Like, let's just keep yeah. attending events. And if you don't see it change, then we know it, you know, it's, I, I think so I just got feedback of a conference that just happened. And apparently it was incredibly not diverse. So, you know, maybe that was because it's already too far in the motion, in, in motion, but um, but I think, I think we just need to pay attention and be not afraid to voice, you know, to call people out on those types of things. Have you gotten any like negative pushback or like reverse or mm -hmm. people saying like, oh, this is like, you know, we don't want, I don't know, one pushback I could imagine is, and, and I've definitely felt this, like, I don't want to be asked to speak because I'm a woman. I want to be asked to speak because I'm a great speaker. And so does that like, are, are there 
what's your response to that? And like, have there any, have there been any other maybe slightly more negative or resistant pushback to, to this movement? Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that. I actually think it's a total cop out to ask any woman to be a moderator just so that you can have women involved or to speak on a panel about diversity if they're not diversity experts. Um, I, I tried my hardest to say no to things that I don't feel like I'm an expert in. Um, so, you know, I'm happy to talk about raising capital. I'm happy to talk about ag tech. I'm happy to talk about indoor ag. I'm happy to talk about building a team <laughs> in New York. I'm happy to talk about many things that I'm doing and that I feel like I can contribute to. Um, just because I'm a woman does not make me an expert in diversity. Uh, and in fact, it's something that I'm, you know, intentionally curious about and trying to navigate around myself, but it's not something that I'm an expert in. And there are plenty of people who are. So if the, you know, if the intent is to have a panel about diversity in an industry, I, I would always advocate to bring on experts in that topic. Um, and, and frankly, it's not an ego thing. I want to be asked to speak about something I'm an expert in because that's the thing that's going to be the most useful for the people that are listening. You don't really want me talking about hockey because I'm not a hockey expert. If you did ask me to speak about the New York Jets, I could probably be myself an expert in that. But, um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be, it's, it's not an ego thing. It's not that you don't want to be asked about being a woman. It's that, you know, I, there are certain things that I am an expert in and I, sh- and I should be asked to speak about those things. Um, in terms of negative pushback, uh, I, I've heard incredibly humorous things to me, but yeah, I mean, we get, there was, there was tons of, I would say most of the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, but there are, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in ads who feel like, um, you know, most of the feedback, I guess that's negative is around the idea that, well, if women aren't representative in the industry, then why would we ask them to be panelists type of a thing? So, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of farm owners in the United States are men. Um, and so if you're doing a conference about farm ownership specifically, then, you know, most people feel, you know, a lot of the pushback is around this, this as an example would be something that people would say, you know, well, farm owners are men. So why would we ask women to participate? Um, and I think that that too is a bit of, you know, that's a bit of just being naive. Uh, one, yes, majority of farm ownership is male right now, but there are women, you know, women are leading the way in terms of research and higher education, and they're coming out with advanced degrees in research and biology and, uh, and, and plant physiology and genomics. And when you think about the tech industry as a whole in this space, you know, the people that are leading the research side are women. And when you think about the people, you know, when you think about big ag and you think about the seed companies and the nutrient companies, there are tons of women in, in high, you know, leadership positions. I think if I look forward into the future, you know, we're, women are 50% of the population. And so uh, when I think about representation in the industry, in, in, in industries in general, when I think about tech CEOs or uh, panels or, uh, employees, I want to see that be more representative of our population. Um, and so, you know, that requires two things being fixed. It beca- requires a pipeline issue being alleviated. So trying to reduce the challenges of access to capital for tech CEOs who um, maybe are women, but also maybe haven't our first time founders or aren't in the Bay Area. There's a lot of different challenges there that make this a pipeline problem of diversity or diverse, diversity pipeline problem. Um, and also a network problem. And this is, you know, simple things like the list. The idea was, if you don't know enough women to ask to get a gender diverse panel, then here are some you can ask. And, you know, it really wasn't meant, you know, it's not meant to be a condescending thing. It's meant to be a, 
you know what, if we don't have a universal list that you'd go to to find people, here's one. Uh, if you don't know who to call to ask somebody, you know, if you don't know who to call, call somebody on this list and they'll help you figure out who you might be able to reach out to. Um, and that is like the first step to me in terms of how do you break down those network barriers. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think uh, we, I think that is a great step towards it. And just like raising the awareness is the first step. And then there's lots of different paths people can take from there. And even just on the sort of vast majority of farmers are men, while definitely true, I would argue like a lot of the farmers I talk to fully the importance of having their wives in that farming system and whether it's running the books or otherwise and, and think of it as a, a farming team and a, a farming family. And so um, I think it's, you know, probably misses some of the point, even that that about the number of farmers who are, are men, um, which I think is always- And I think one of the, yeah, one of the interesting things I'll just add to that though is, is that there is this changing dynamic of who is a farmer. Um, you know, you asked us earlier about the indoor farming space and, and your and I answered via profession, but you're also seeing a dynamic shift of who is a farmer. Uh, we, I mean, we're working with over, you know, 150 some odd customer growers around the world. Uh, and I'd say probably, I think 40, close to 40% are women owned, women operated farms. Um, so that's a very different number than, you know, ranching or commodities or whatever it may be. Uh, but it's uh, but it's an interesting picture to look at as we start to think, you know, okay, how is farming changing, and then who is a farmer, or what is you know what is the concept of a farmer, is starting to shift a little bit. Very much so, and actually, I'm seeing the same thing, but on the opposite side. So we've been running um, at Authentic a program for farmer entrepreneurs, so producers who raised their hand and wanted to go on the, the startup journey because they have an idea or a burning pain point that they want to solve. And that both of the cohorts we've run so far, very small sample size, but have been much more close um, to sort of gender balance, sort of more of like a 40, 45 percent female um, mm. in self-selecting to be entrepreneurs coming from the the producer and, and ag community. So starting to see that change um, on that side as well, which I think is is really exciting and interesting. Mm. That's very cool. Um, so I so appreciate you coming on. I have one last question, um, which is what does agrilist mean and, and how did you come up with with that name? <laughs> um, there's a so it means agricultural analyst is the sort of joining of those those words and uh, I love the I, I actually really love the name Salesforce for a company because I feel like it really aptly describes what the product does you know if you look back 10 years ago you know the product that Salesforce was trying to create and put into the market was something that was going to be the tool of your Salesforce if not automate your Salesforce at one day and the idea for uh, Agrilis really was that, you know, you don't necessarily have a data scientist on site or an analyst on site, but you could. You could have this tool that could serve as this role for your company. Um, there's, a, there's a shorter answer, too, which is when you, when you pick a name for your company, I always advocate for picking something with an A so that you're at the top of every list. Whenever you're at a conference, whenever you're, you know, old school, if you look at a phone book, uh, having a company with an A is, is incredibly helpful visually for somebody to find find you. That's so funny. That is the advice that my dad, who's, who's an entrepreneur, um, gave gave me in <laughs> the company. He started, have always started with an A, um, and he essentially <laughs> wouldn't back me starting a company unless it started with an A. And I thought he was being a, a total dinosaur, <laughs> but I've been surprised to hear how many people also still yeah. through even in the digital world. 
my father also he he started his own business as well and he uh that was his advice as well he he had a few things that were nuggets of, of fun facts from the days old and starting companies as an accounting firm and you know it was things like put flyers underneath windshield wipers and pick an a name so <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious um, well, Alton, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find more information about um, the, the list of women in ag tech, about AgriList, and about the State of Indoor Farming report? Where should they where should they look to find those resources? Yeah, so there's a bunch of resources. Um, so I'm on Twitter personally at, uh, at Alton Koff, my name, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-K-O-P-F. Um, our company is at AgriList, and we try and post there as often as we can. Uh, we also write a, a decent amount on our blog. We're, we're on Medium, if you just search for AgriList on Medium. And that's where we'll post things like uh, insights into data, you know, how is the indoor farming industry evolving, who's the, who's the farmer, those types of pieces. Uh, the survey itself is at uh, uh, agrilist.com slash state indoor farming um, uh, 2017. Uh, and our website is agrilist.com. So there's, there's a wide array of resources, but um, but almost all of them cross-link to each other. So if you find one, you can probably find all the others. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And just a huge shout out. I think that the, um, A, the content you guys put out is really good and I've enjoyed reading it and following it. And B, the report is so well designed. Like I wasn't, I wasn't going to say <laughs> this, but it's so refreshing to have a report that is easy to read and like look really slick and nice. Um, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a very fun project to work on every year. I mean, I write it, uh, and hopefully that'll start to change in the future years. But it's uh, it's it's good to learn from the growers, honestly, and it's, they give you good t- content, so it's pretty easy to put together. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Austin, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, um, and hope to meet you in person sometime soon, maybe at a, a conference or, or otherwise. Where we're both panelists. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Bush Tech Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. If you have feedback, suggestions for future guests, or technologies or topics you want us to cover, you can find us at bushtechpodcast.com.au. I hope you found it enjoyable. Until next time, see ya. See ya.